Oh Lord, we come again to you to thank you for this time that we can return, Lord, from uh, having received physical blessings, Lord, for you to bless us spiritually. Lord, as we continue to study righteousness by faith, we pray that your spirit will abide with us, that will give us understanding of these very important truths, that, we'll, that he will convict us Lord, of things in our lives that needs to change, and that he will help us to understand that you are God and that we have to be reverent and, and that you are the one in whose hand our lives are. And, Lord, we, and so, Lord, we, we simply come to you knowing that without you we can't do nothing. And we pray, Lord, that you help us this afternoon as we cannot help ourselves. I thank you, Lord, for being good to us. Pray that you will forgive any sins that we may have committed in the short time that we've uh, left and that you will make us righteous like Christ is righteous. And I thank you just for being such an awesome God. I pray all this, Lord, in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, before I continue, one of the things that um, um, I just want to, again, emphasize is righteousness by faith is not just a, a, a theology, a, a bunch of good ideas. It is something that is transformative. It is something that is empowering. Once well understood, and once it's, it's um, something that we live by, it changes our lives because it makes us like Christ. And so um, as we continue to, to study these things, uh, don't just take them intellectually and be blessed spiritually, but also make them something that is an integral part of your life, that you live by it. Remember, there is a way of righteousness, so it's a way of living. So again, um, if you haven't taken my email down, please do it. Uh, so let's do a, a very quick review. So the things we've established, we've established that righteousness is the character of God. Righteousness is the standard of all character. And the standard of righteousness is the law. The law is a transcript of God's character. And Jesus is the perfect example of righteousness. We've also established that the law is righteous, but keeping the law cannot make us righteous. <clears throat> because keeping the law is only good when, when we keep it, when I keep it. Uh, but because we have fallen short of the glory of God, we become in debt. And no matter how much we keep the law, we are always in debt. Uh, all my righteousness is actually gone because of one fall, according to Ezekiel. And it is also impossible for me to keep the law and please God. Uh, however, only the law can determine what sin is. Paul says repetitively, when there is no law, there is no sin. And the wages of sin is death, that is the second death, the everlasting death. And the law shows me my need for righteousness and for Christ. Finally, the righteousness of God is by faith, not by the keeping of the law. Faith is not blind and it's definitely not a feeling and faith is basically knowing, believing and acting upon the word of God. And so the last verse we, we've read is Paul telling us that we are saved by faith through grace or by grace through faith. I <laughs> Let me go in and get that one. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so let us talk now about grace. What is grace? What is grace? Well, you've surely heard the, uh, the usual thing. First thing is grace is an unmerited favor. Okay, grace is a gift. And, and th this, is, this is great. Uh, that's in... Um, First Selected Messages 331, in Fundamentals of Christian Education 457, we read that we should continually realize that we do not deserve grace because of our merit, for all that we have is God's gift. So grace is a gift, and grace is an unmerited favor, but what is grace? You see, when, when we say grace is... Uh, is an unmerited favor. All that it tells us is that I don't deserve it. It's really what it tells us. When we talk about grace as a gift, it's something that I cannot earn. 
that I cannot work for, that, that I, I, I have no say, I cannot plead or beg for it. That's all it tells us is, is, the, is how to receive it. And basically we receive it because God gives it to us. But what really is grace? Bible Romans 11.6 tells us that grace is no more grace if we work for it and that work is no more work if it would be by grace. That's Romans 11.6. So here is in Counsel to Parents, Teacher and Student 537, Sister White tells us that divine grace is the great element of saving power without it all human effort is unavailing. Grace is the great element of saving power. That's what grace is. Grace is power from God to save us. Amen? Amen. I think that's pretty awesome. Then, then it's just a gift, right? It's saving power. Power that is available to us. And it comes straight from God. And we're going to look at several elements. We're going to start by uh, looking at what grace does. Uh, it, the, the saving uh, grace part of it. In 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11, uh, we read that the prophet, have inquired and searched diligently, they prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, unto us. And that grace that, that they prophesied about was that they testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The saving grace is what permitted God to send Christ to die for us. Christ, he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Hebrews 2.9. You know that that's the reason why Jesus was able to come and die for us, for our sins? It's because of grace. Because grace is saving power. Romans 5, 20, 21. Sin had reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The great element of saving power, grace, was demonstrated in the sacrifice of Jesus. Grace is powerful, amen? But it's also expensive for God because it cost him his son. And it's, it's really frustrating when we have so many people that talk about cheap grace. All you need is grace. It's okay, we have grace and grace this and grace that. And they don't really explain how, how much bigger grace is, how much more solemn it is, and how much more expensive it ought to be um, thought upon. But grace is only effective through righteousness. In other words, grace will only work when righteousness is present. And uh, <clears throat> grace also has another, uh, something else that it does is that it transforms. And I want to show you this example by Paul in Ephesians 3, 7, 8. It says, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Now, he says he is a minister. What does a minister do? Yeah, it, it preaches the gospel, ministers to people, serves the people. What was Paul before? He was a persecutor. So he went from a persecutor to a minister. That's grace in action. That's working grace. That's transforming grace. He goes on saying, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given me that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Before he would drag the saints in the streets and bring them to court and testify against them. After grace transformed them, he began to preach the gospel. Uh, <clears throat> he also tells us in Ephesians uh, 2, 4, and 7, when we were dead in... Uh, Okay, but God who was in rich mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, had quickened, quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and had raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here, grace brings us from being sinners and enemies of God to co-heir with Christ. 
transforming grace. But you know, it's one thing to be transformed, but grace does much more than just transforms us. It sustains what it transforms. Here's a few examples. Uh, speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul tells us that he ought to be strong in the grace. Hebrews 4.16 is that we may find grace to help in time of need. When you're struggling, grace is what you need because grace is the great element of saving power. According to Peter in 2 Peter 3.18, it's also something that you grow into. You grow in grace. So you don't always remain where you are. It helps you grow in your life as a Christian. And what's completely amazing is in Romans 6, 14, 15. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You do not have to be a slave to sin. Amen? You don't have to be. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Grace gives you power to be freed from sin. Now, how do I gain access to that grace? Because, yeah, it's there. It's available. God wants to bestow it upon us. How do I get access to it? How do I gain that grace? Because the fact that it's just there doesn't mean I have it. It's like if I tell you, grace is a gift. I have a gift for you. It's at my home. It's on my desk at home. Do you have it? But can you have it? But you have to do something, right? It's a little bit the same thing with grace. There's a, we got to claim it. We got to get it. We got to, uh, <clears throat> there is something for us to do. You know that gospel that don't do anything, just sit down, God does everything? That's unbiblical, okay? And you're going to start seeing that more and more. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, 1 Peter 5, 5 tells us that God gives grace to the humble, Okay? So your attitude is also important. Humility, humble, lowly like Christ. Proud people, arrogant people, people that shows up that are self-confident and self-dependent, no grace. And in a way it makes sense because if you're not humble and, and, you know, and you're proud and all that, you're not going to ask for grace. Right? You're going to depend on yourself. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved, through faith. Romans 5.2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So what do you have to do to obtain grace? You have to exercise faith, right? So God tells you, grace is available to you. I heard this word. I understand it's available to me. And I know what grace does. It transforms me and it changes me and it sustains me. Therefore, I'm living as a transformed and sustained person. That's accessing grace through faith. <clears throat> Tells us that as every man had received the gift, even so uh, minister the same one another as good steward of the manifold graces of God. Every man has access to that gift of grace. It is not for just any individual or just a certain number of individuals. It's available to everybody. But not everybody gets it because not everybody accesses it. And the great thing also is that, you know, in Romans 12, 3, you have these two elements. It says that, uh, that grace was given to Paul and God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. So there is no excuse for anyone not to access grace because grace is accessible through faith and everyone was given a measure of faith and therefore everyone can access grace make sense yes. so in review grace is the great element of saving power of god grace is a gift and an unmerited favor grace's power was demonstrated in the sacrifice of christ grace can save transform and sustain us and grace is only accessible through faith and to the humble so now we can start talking about the great element that constitute righteousness by faith and these are uh, two very important point two um, two faiths almost of the 
two, two different faces of the same coin. It's these two things that you might have heard of, justification and sanctification. Now there's also glorification, but that's a very, very simple and easy thing to talk about. We're not going to touch it so much, but justification is so important because that's the one that's always preached about. And we don't, heard of, we don't hear about sanctification. But sanctification is, is you, you can't remove it. It's right there. So we're going to talk about, well, we're going to spend a little bit more time on justification to get it, to get the right view on it, what the Bible says and what the spirit of prophecy says. Because if we, if we mess up on justification, we're not going to understand sanctification. Messages, young people, page 35. I highly recommend that book for all of you. It's very good. We read, the righteousness by which we are justified. What's the word justified? What does it mean? Made righteous. So the righteousness by which we are made righteous is imputed. Remember what imputed was? Means credited. It's credited to your account. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. We'll talk about these two words uh, the next section. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. So basically the first changes our title from sinner to righteous. The second changes our character from somebody that is sinning to somebody that is doing righteously or that does righteousness. So we'll deal with the first one. Um, <clears throat> there's a parable in Luke. Uh, you probably all know the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Let's read through it. Luke 18, 9 to 14. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other one a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men's are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds like righteousness by work, eh? righteousness by the law. I do all these things, so I'm pretty awesome. And then we go on, it says, And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus goes on and says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. And so here you have an example of a man who was justified by faith. The publican. Doesn't look like he was fasting, and doesn't look like he was giving tithes, or at least not in comparison to what the other guy is saying. But the other guy was saying all these things that he was doing, I didn't do anything for him. He didn't go home justified. The first thing that this person did is he repented. When Jesus came to earth, he says in Luke 5, 31, 32, that he came to call sinners to repentance. Not the righteous, not those that claim to be righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we're going to start looking at how we are justified by faith. And there is something that we do, and there is something that God does. Okay, so now we're looking at what we have to do. So first, repentance. When Peter was asked by the people on the day of uh, Pentecost, or, or shortly after, what must we do to be saved? He told them, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That's in Acts 3.19. And so the first thing that Paul tells people is you have to repent. You have to repent. <clears throat> what is repentance? 2 Corinthians 7, 9-11, there's a, a fantastic um, uh, exposition here on true repentance and false repentance. And Paul tells us that <clears throat> he wrote to them a letter to the, the people in, in Corinth. And he says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. So in order to come to repentance, what must we first do? 
sorrow, okay? We have to be sorry. Our sorry, our sorrow brings us to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner. So there's a godly type of sorry that he might receive damage by us and nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Okay? There's two types of sorrow. There's two types of repentance. And that shouldn't surprise all of us because pretty much everything is a counterfeit. And there is a counterfeit to repentance. Now let's see what the true repentance looks like. Because once we know what the true repentance looks like, we'll know what the false one looks like. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrow after a godly sort, and look what it did to the people. What carefulness it wrought in you to walk properly. Ye what clearing of yourself, make sure that you're, you're not engaging in things that would bring you to sin. Ye what indignation, you hate sins, you don't want to have anything to do with it. What fear, fear to, to damage the name of God. What vehement desire to follow Him in all things. Ye what zeal to do His work. Ye what revenge. The word revenge here means vindication, justice. Justice and vindication for the name of God that's been stained. In all things you have approved yourselves to be cleared in this manner. Somebody that is truly repentant, that's what he looks like. That's what he does. That's how he, he reacts to things. That's how he goes about. Steps to Christ, page 23. How many of you know Steps to Christ? How many of you have read it? If you didn't read it, you have to read it. Righteousness by faith is all through these pages. And if you've read it, read it again. It's that good. Okay, uh, Steps to Christ, page 23. How, sh how shall a man, a man be just with God? How shall the sinner be made righteous? That's what we're looking for, right? We want to know how that happened. How are we going to be made righteous? Well, she goes down saying, what shall we do? And Peter's answer was repent. And even later he said again, repent. This is the first thing that we have to do. We have to repent. She goes on saying, repentance includes a sorrow for sin and a turning away from it. A sorrow for sin. That's godly repentance. Worldly repentance. Worldly repentance is lamenting for the consequences of sin, for the sufferings that happen. Not for the sin, not for the fact that sin hurts God, not for the fact that sin breaks His law, not for the fact that sin damages the character of God. That would be godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is about self. I'm hurting, I'm in pain, because I've sinned, because I've messed up, now I feel bad. God, please forgive me because I want to stop hurting and I want to stop feeling bad. That's not true repentance. Because true repentance also means that you turn away from it. So you've, you've acknowledged, oh, I've been, you know, doing this sin. I'm repenting. I don't want to have anything to do with sin. I turn away. I move away. I don't want to do this anymore. That's repentance. Somebody who's... who's uh, Repenting only for the consequence will say, I'm sorry, once the consequences are removed, goes right back to what they were doing. Remember uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. Every time a plague would come, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please, Moses, tell your God to remove the, the plague. And the moment the plague is gone, he hardens his heart and, no, you're not leaving. Right? That's worldly repentance. That's not godly repentance. Same thing with Esau. When he, he lost his birthright, he cried and everything, but, but then he just wanted to kill his brother after. Judas, Judas was sorry that he had betrayed Jesus. Not because he'd betrayed Jesus, but because of what it did to him, and then he hung himself. That's not true repentance. Uh, Bible Commentary, Volume 6. God requires of all his subject obedience, entire obedience to all his commandments. He demands now as the ever perfect righteousness as the only title to heaven. His righteousness is imputed only to who? The obedient. Well, that makes sense because once you repent and you turn away from sin, you start to do what? Obey. Right? And a lot of people don't like to talk about that. They just want to say, well, you just have to say sorry, you know, for your sin. 
and uh, forget about obedience. His righteousness is imputed only to the obedient. How can you say forget obedience? Obedience is an integral part of justification. It's part of it. You need to move away from sin. So now that you, you've repented, you've said sorry for your sins, you, you've understood that it hurts God and you turn away and you're obedient, the next thing is confession. Romans 10, 9 and 10 uh, Paul says, uh, talks about being saved, and he says, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Okay? Confession is something that we have to do. We have to say, we have to speak. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? He removes the unrighteousness when we confess. What does true confession look like? Because obviously, if there's a true repentance and a false repentance, guess what? There's a true confession and a false confession. Here's a true confession. Steps to Christ, page 38. True, confe true confession is always of a specific character and acknowledges particular sins. All right? If you, you, you have to know what you're apologizing for, what you're repenting for, and what you're confessing for. And when we come to God, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. But you're not expressing what that sin is. You're not really confessing it. And it's, it's a different thing where, where, when we're in a public sitting and we're praying in a general prayer. But when you go home and you seek true repentance and you lock yourself in the closet, you have to express what your sin is. It has to be of a specific character. Uh, she goes on saying, they may be of a such, a nature, such a nature as to be brought before God only. When you've heard God, you bring it to God, because all sins are against God. They may be wrongs that should be confessed to individuals who have suffered injury through them. So if you've hurt somebody, part of confession is also to ask forgiveness to the other people that you've hurt. Or they may be of a public character and should then be as publicly confess. So if I were to offend all of you, I would have to apologize to all of you. That's true confession. But all confession should be definite and to the point acknowledging the very sins of which you are guilty. I mean, don't try to justify why you did what you did. You did that, that's a sin, apologize for it, and go straight to the point. <clears throat> now that this is done, God can begin his work in us. He's already, he already begun it because he convicted us of our sins. And through the spirit and the law, he brought us to, to understand that we've sinned. And because of that, we were able to repent and to confess. But now God starts his work in us. Uh, Acts 2.38, when Peter tells people to repent and to be baptized, if need be, in the name of Jesus Christ, he talks about the remissions of sins. Any idea what remission is? It's very f simple. It's forgiveness, pardon. So when we confess our sin and we repent, God can begin to forgive us our sins. In Rom Romans 3, to 26, we read that uh, regarding the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, we read that, that we being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ, Jesus, that He declares His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, <clears throat> Here, it's, it's, it sounds very complicated, but what I want you to focus is the last part. It says that God declares His righteousness, His character, by the remissions of our sin, by forgiving us our sins. So God is able to show His character to us by offering us pardon, by forgiving us. And it says that it's for the forgiving of the sins that are what? pass. Okay, now some people have troubles with that, so I need to take some time to explain it. God does not forgive you sins that you have not yet committed. Make sense, right? He forgives the sins that are past, because only the sins that are past can you repent of and confess of, right? 
So what he's basically doing is that he's taking care of your past, what's behind you, what you've done, what you've committed. He's clearing and cleaning your past. He's fixing what you've messed up with, what I've messed up with. So he's doing that. He's not taking care of the future, so you can't assume, well, I've been forgiven, so now my next sin is forgiven, so I don't need to confess it. It doesn't work like that. It's for what is past. Uh, again, we read in Ephesians 1.7 that uh, <coughs> we have redemption through the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of His grace. It is grace that brings about forgiveness of sin. Now, when God forgives us our sin, He doesn't just leave us just like forgiven, kind of like empty. right? Because once you're forgiven, that doesn't make you righteous yet. That just makes you kind of blank, right? God doesn't want just blank people. He wants to do more. And we read that in Romans 4, uh, 20 through 25, I'm going to go through the important stuff. It says um, regarding Abraham, Abraham uh, was given a promise. And we read that he didn't have problem with the promise, that he exercised faith and that he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And because he believed, because he had faith in the power of God, it was imputed to him for righteousness. The word imputed, again, means credited. So because he had faith in the power of God and the word of God, righteousness was credited to Abraham. Okay, he didn't do anything but have faith in the word of God and act upon the word of God. And because of that, he was given righteousness. Okay, it was imputed to him. Now, it was not just written... Paul says it was not just written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, uh, to whom it shall be imputed. Okay, so we will receive imputation of righteousness if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our, for our offenses and was raised again for what? Our justification. Christ died for what? For our sins, right? To carry the penalty of our sins. Ever ask yourself, why was Jesus raised up? He was raised up, basically, like it says, for our justification. He was raised up to show that his sacrifice for our sins was accepted. And he was raised up so that we can now have righteousness, so that our sins have indeed been blotted out, have indeed been forgiven, and now God can work His righteousness in us. <clears throat> so basically what God wants to do is He wants to impute righteousness in us. Romans 4, 3 to 8, we read that Abraham believed God and was counted, as the same word as imputed, unto him for righteousness. His faith is counted for righteousness. God imputes righteousness without works. Iniquities are forgiven, sins are covered, and the Lord does not impute sin because impute righteousness. So let's, let's let me try to uh, make that a little clearer now we went all through these texts. <clears throat> we come to God, we realize we've sinned. I've sinned, I'm a sinner. Come to God, you, you, you repent from your sin, you move away, you confess. And you believe that God will forgive you your sin if you confess. And indeed, God looks at your face and says, Yes, indeed, my son, I forgive. My daughter, I forgive your sin. And now that I've forgiven your sins, I've removed the character of sinner that you have. I'm removing this from you, and I'm imputing, I'm crediting you the righteousness of Christ to you. Now, in your account, instead of having sin, you now have righteousness. Yes. Yes, Jesus was, I was saying, Jesus was raised that we may be justified, that we may have justification. Basically, the, wa the reason why Jesus got risen is so that we could be made righteous through Jesus Christ. Oh, and thank you for pointing that out. <clears throat> a lot of things I'm going to say, and it's going to sound like it's, it's uh, uh, people get accused of that along a lot when we say, you know, you can obey and you can do these things, and it's, Yes, it's through Jesus Christ's power. It's never through our power. We are made righteous through Jesus Christ's power. 
God justifies us because of Jesus Christ. There's really nothing for us to do um, to earn that righteousness. We just have to depend on the Word of God. So again, when God forgives us, He doesn't just leave us as forgiven people. He imputes and He credits us righteousness so that we are now righteous because we have righteousness. That's why He changes our title, remember? Imputed righteousness is our title to heaven. So He changes our title from being a sinner to righteous. Uh, Bible Commentary, Volume 6, 1073, it says, Faith is the condition upon which God has seen fit to promise pardon to sinners. Now that there is, not that there is any virtue in faith whereby salvation is merited, but because faith can lay hold on the merits of Christ, the remedy provided for sin. Faith can preside, present Christ's perfect obedience instead of the sinner's transgression and defection. God pardons his sin and justifies him freely. The repentant soul realized that his justification comes because of Christ. So we lay hold on uh, by faith on Jesus Christ's perfect obedience. And God removes all our transgression and takes Christ's perfect obedience, righteousness, and gives it to us so that God no longer sees us as being a sinner, but now only sees the righteousness of Christ and can look at us as righteous. And then he took all those transgressions that we've committed, that we've repented and confessed of, and he placed them on Christ, on the cross. And that's how Christ carried our sin and bare our transgression. Again, Bible Commentary, Volume 6, 1071. Let no one take the limited, narrow position that any of the works of man can help in the least possible way to liquidate the depth of his transgression. Okay, you can't work to be forgiven. You can't work to get your sins out. We've established that a little before. Uh, again, Bible Commentary, Volume 6, 1071. God always demanded good works. The law demands it. But because man placed himself in sin, where his works were valueless, Jesus' righteousness alone can avail. So this is, basic, this is the first part of righteousness by faith. Is God promising to give us the righteousness of Christ when we come to him asking for forgiveness? And by faith, we understand that Christ permit, uh, God promises, prom promises us that, and therefore, we, we believe it, and we accept it, and we live according to that. The grace of Christ is freely, the grace of Christ is freely to justify the sinner without merit or claim on his part. Justification is a full, complete pardon of sin. The moment a sinner accepts Christ by faith, that moment he is pardoned. The righteousness of Christ is imputed, credited to him, and he is no more to doubt God's forgiving grace. That was so well explained. Amen? Amen. That's Bible Commentary, uh, Volume 6, 1071, again. Yes. Yes. So that really brings grace in us? Always. It's always the work of God in us. Uh, going on, the next paragraph. There is nothing in faith that makes it our Savior. Faith cannot remove our guilt. The justification comes through the merits of Jesus Christ. He has paid the price for the sinner's redemption, yet it is only through faith in his blood that Jesus can justify the believer. Again, that's why faith is so important to understand how it works and what it is about. It's because it is through faith that we can uh, lay hold of the promises of God, the promise of justification, and the promise of him crediting us or imputing us the righteousness of Christ. Now, remember when we, we talked about sin, the fact that once you sin, in Ezekiel it says that all your righteousness is gone. Remember that? There's a flip side. Ezekiel 18, 20, 23, it says, The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Logical. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins, from all his sins, the Bible says, all his transgression that he had committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. Amen? Amen. 
Okay, so the, the flip side is once we've sinned, all the righteousness that we had is gone. And we're a sinner, and that's all we can be. But because of righteousness by faith, because of justification, the opposite can be done. We can have all of our sins erased and done with and have righteousness because of Christ's perfect obedience. And confession. Remember what we've read? Confession has always, is always for, um, of a specific character acknowledging the very sin. And what God will do is he will bring these things to your remembrance. Because as you, as you gain light, as you understand truth, as you see the law and as you see the character of Christ, you realize, oh yeah, I've done this. Yeah, I, I, I stole candy 10 years ago, right? Something like that, whatever. Well, it's still stealing, right? It's still theft. You didn't know, but it's still a sin. Now God winked at it. We've looked at that, but now he gives you knowledge. So now that you have knowledge, you have to go and mend this sin. You have to confess it. And, and that's, the, that's the point. That's why we're, we're, we're in the investigative judgment, right? Since 1844. Now, what did they do during the Day of Atonement? Because that's the connection between 1844, the judgment, the Day of Atonement, is people would, would search their heart to make sure they're cleansed from all unrighteousness. And this is the work we're, we're supposed to do right now. We're supposed to search our heart to find everything that does, not, that does not align with Christ, that does not align with God and His righteousness, so that we can have forgiveness and get cleansed from them. So you can't ask forgiveness no, you can never ask forgiveness for somebody else. That person has to acknowledge their own sin. You can forgive somebody. Uh, you can't forgive their sins, obviously, because sins is against God. But you can forgive them from hurting you and from you know, bringing you pain and all these things. And you should, because the Bible says if you don't forgive somebody's debt, your debt will not be forgiven either. Amen? So it goes both ways. And that's why, uh, going back, the Bible tells us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We are not just, we are, we are made righteous. We become righteous. When that righteousness is credited to you, you own it. It's yours. So you go from being a sinner to a righteous man. That's how God makes us righteous. Now remember that verse. Now that verse is going to make sense to you. What the law could not do, Romans 8, 3 to 4, that is, was weak through the flesh. God had to send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemn sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Because we were in debt, we couldn't keep the law. We were always falling short. And so God swipes all this and gives us Christ's perfect obedience. He never failed. He never missed. He ne his average never dropped down. Amen? He was always right there. And so God gives that to us. That is justification by faith. And justification by faith happens like that. It's the work of a moment, of an instant. It's pardon, it's forgiveness, it's given, and it's making us righteous. But now what do you do from there? <clears throat> so let's uh, review a little bit. Justification is righteousness that is imputed, credited, given to us. God forgives those that repent and confess their sins. God then makes us righteous by imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. God doesn't just leave us there. Now that, that we, and, and this is all done by grace, right? We understand that grace is a transforming power, transforming us from sinner to righteousness. That's the only way God can justify us, by His grace, by His saving power. So now God doesn't leave us there. Because, okay, now, now I've confessed, I'm, 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 I, I'm righteous because God told me I'm righteous. I don't feel like it, right? But by faith, I believe it. And it's like that, so, so now what? what? What do we do? Well, that's when the, the work of sanctification kind of begins. Let's go back to that uh, passage we've read, Messages to Young People. The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. So now, now that we have our title right, now we need to get fit. Right? That's what fitness is. It's, it's getting fit. How is your fitness? And that's the part that's called sanctification. Uh, the word sanctification is, is 
usually spoken as you know, set aside for good use or to do something. It's, you know, yes, it's set aside, and you've been set aside, now you, you gotta do something, right? You, you don't just not do anything, and, and it's not like a, a once righteous, always righteous, I don't have to do anything, I can do whatever I want now that I'm righteous. Every work that I do will be righteous. No, that doesn't work like that. First Thessalonians 4.1.7. Uh, <clears throat> Paul is talking of a few things. He says that we ought to walk and please God. And then he says that this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So, <clears throat> do you think sanctification is something God wants for us? Yes, it's his will for our life. So it's important to talk about it. And it tells us at the end of that passage that God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness, unto holy living. We are set aside for holy living, not for sinful life, holy living. Uh, Christ Object Lessons 3.11. <clears throat> Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character and this character he offers to impart to us. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Amen? When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Then as the Lord look upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. The idea behind sanctification is very simple. It's to live righteously. It's now that you've been giving righteousness you've been giving the character of god now you you can start over you can now do righteously you can now obey the law because christ did it so that we could do it and we can do it paul says that my uh, god says to paul by my grace is sufficient for thee for my strength is made perfect in weakness are we weak Praise God, because because we're weak, he, his strength, can be made perfect because of his grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10, his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The grace of God is, is not only the grace that saves us, that transforms us, that makes us righteous, it's the grace that helps us to do righteously, to sustain us. This day with God, uh, page 262. Our leader goes before us, and as we follow him, he imparts to us his righteousness, which is revealed in our lives by a well-ordered life and a godly conversation. That means conduct. It is faith and works that makes us Christians, preparing us to sit together in heavenly places with Christ. Sanctification. Now, <clears throat> can I read a, a passage from Faith I Live By? Now, I want you to pay attention because it, it basically will clarify a lot of stuff if you were still a little confused regarding justification, sanctification, and this, this whole concept here. Uh, again, she started, The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. I'm sure you'll have that memorized by the time we're done. Yes, brother? Imparted. Um, I have it in my notes somewhere. I'll have to go back to it. Um, sorry about that. I had it here, and I wanted to give it to you, like, properly. I'll come back, okay? Uh, <clears throat> Many commit the error of trying to define minutely the fine points of distinction between justification and sanctification. Into the definition of these two terms, they often bring their own ideas and speculation. Why try to be more minute than is inspiration of the vital question of righteousness by faith? 
And that's why if you've noticed, I have a lot of material, a lot of Bible verse that I give you and a lot of quotes from inspiration because I want to make sure that what I'm presenting and what you're seeing is indeed following this counsel and it has to do with the Bible and with the spirit of prophecy. That's not my own word because my own words are absolutely worthless. No matter if I know the, the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and all the languages in the world, and I have studied, I have five PhDs, it doesn't mean anything if what I'm not saying is not biblical. Amen? It goes on saying, as the penitent sinner, contrite before God, discerns Christ's atonement on his behalf, his sacrifice that Jesus made, and accepts this atonement as his only hope in this life and future life, his sins are pardoned, this is justification by faith. In a simple term, justification by faith is forgiveness. Now, sanctification is not the work of a moment, an hour, a day, but of a lifetime. Okay, it's something that is continual throughout your life. It is not gained by a happy flight of feeling, but it is the result of constantly dying to sin and constantly living for Christ. Wrongs cannot be righted nor reformation wrought in the character by feeble intermittent effort. It's not easy, okay? It's something that demands effort all the time. It is only by long, persevering effort, sword discipline, and stern conflict that we shall what? Overcome. It, sanctification, is not merely a theory, an emotion, or a form of words but a living, active principle entering into the everyday life. It requires that our habits of eating, drinking, and dressing be such as to secure the preservation of physical, mental, and moral health, that we may present to the Lord our bodies, not an offering corrupted by wrong habits, but a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. The scriptures are the great agency in the transformation of character. If studied and obeyed, the word of God works in the heart, subduing every unholy attribute. There is no such thing as instantaneous sanctification. True sanctification is a daily work continuing as long as life shall last. Now, if you've gotten anything out of that passage, sanctification is obedience, is living righteously every day, is choosing to obey and to follow God in every situation, whether I feel like it or not, and believing that God can indeed do that through His grace, through me, by the power of Christ. That is true sanctification. Conflict and Courage, page 249. The body is to be brought under subjection to the higher powers of the being. The passions are to be controlled by the will. That's very difficult since we've fallen. Because when God created us, because God created emotions, right? He created feeling and all these things. He created these passions. They were all there. But the will was so much more powerful that these were subdued. But because of sin, they take the ascendancy. They become stronger and more powerful. And it's hard for the will to keep them under subjection. That's when we need the power of God. So the passions are to be controlled by the will, which is itself to be under the control of God. So if your will is under the control of God, then your will will be able to put under control your passion. The kingly power of reason, sanctified by divine grace, is to bear sway in the life. Intellectual power, physical stamina, and the length of life depend upon immutable laws. Through obedience to these laws, man may stand conqueror of himself, because you are your greatest enemy and I am my greatest enemy, conqueror of his own inclinations, conqueror of the rulers of the, dark, of darkness, of the darkness of this world, and of spiritual wickedness in high places. According to what we've been reading, it is possible for us to live righteously. It is possible for us to do right doing. It is possible for us to obey God. And we do it by submitting ourselves to God. I want to talk to you about Jesus. It's a good thing, right? Jesus came to earth. We, we've read that when Jesus came to earth, he, he, he obeyed 
to show us that we can do it too. So here, Paul, Peter, writer, in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24, one of my favorite passage now, uh, I always quote it almost everywhere. It's, it's such a great passage. It says, for even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Now, what do you do with an example? What's the purpose of an example? You learn from it. What else? To follow, right? So you, you, you have your exam, you know, I don't know if you do some equation and it's giving you, this is how you do it, this is an example. And then you go on to your, your other equation and you do it the way the example showed you to do it. What's the example? Uh, Peter goes on that we should follow his steps. So there's an expectation that we should live like Christ, that we should follow his example. And what was the example that he left? Who did what? No sin. That's the example Christ left for us. No sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. But what did he do? He committed himself to him that judged righteously. You want to know how Christ did it? He committed himself to him, to God that judges righteously. Who is in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripe you were healed. We have to be dead to sin. When you're dead to sin, you know, the only people that don't sin, do you know who they are? Dead people, right? It's true. I've never seen a dead person sin. And that's what we have to do. We have to die, not literally but ourselves have to die. We have to stop living for ourselves because that's what we do. And we have to start living for God. And once we die, then we'll be dead to sin. And sin will not be able to have control. And God will take control. We'll be able to follow what God tells us to do, what the scripture commands us to do. And that's why, uh, and we're, let's, let's look at it. Let's look at Jesus. Let's look at what he did when he was on earth, when he came in human form, when he took humanity upon himself. A uh, rich young ruler came to him and in Luke 18, 18, 20, and I, it always strikes me. He comes to Jesus and he says, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what's the first thing that Jesus tell him? How to inherit eternal life? No. He asks him a question. Why are you calling me good? Well, you're Jesus. Of course you're good. Right? When, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't call me good. Because there's none good, that is, there's no human that are good. And he's including himself. Because he came in human flesh. He came bearing our nature. He says, none is good save one that is God. And therefore, he's basically saying, don't look at me. Look at God. Look, I am looking at God myself. I am committing myself to God. And you have to do the same thing. And then he points him to what? The commandments. What are the commandments? They're the law. What is the law? What does it do? What, what's the purpose of the law? Show us the character of God. And he's saying, look at the character of God. That's how you'll earn eternal life. That's, that's how you'll be able to get there. Now, how did Jesus live? I love this. This is all found in John. John 5, 19. Jesus says, the son can do nothing of himself. But what he seeth the father do these also do with the Son. He looks at the Father, this is all my Father is, this is how I am. This is what my Father does, this is what I do. He goes on saying, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. You need to live for God. You need to follow Him. That's what Jesus did. He goes on saying that He did not... Uh, he came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent him. John 6, 38. John 8, 28 says, I, can, I, I do nothing of myself, but as my father has taught me, I speak these things. Even what he says is not even from himself. It's from God. What occupies our conversation? We were at uh, Potluck earlier. What did we talk about? What did we talk about? Um, I speak the, the word, uh, no, I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him 
He didn't go to talk about latest things that happened on Facebook, the latest movie release, the mo last music, whatever. He came to the world to talk about what he's heard of God. <clears throat> the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. Do you start realizing that there's nothing that Jesus said when he was on earth that was from himself? Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the work. Jesus let his Father take over. And that's why when he came, he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. When Jesus came here, it was not for himself. It was to do the work of God. And he spoke the word of God. And he acted as God commanded him to act. And he did everything according to his Father's will. That was the word that was given to Jesus. That's the word that's given to us. To be holy. To live in holiness and righteousness. God, you know, didn't give any advantages to Jesus. He had to commit himself. Jesus says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God will permit you to obey. Jesus says, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Okay, a few more and then we'll have a break. Reflecting Christ 237, Christ came to stand at the head of humanity and to demonstrate that through the power of the Spirit, it is possible for man to withstand Satan's temptation. You can stand before Satan. Jesus did it through the Spirit, and so can we. First selected messages 223, Christ proved that it is possible for man to lay hold of faith on the power of God. He showed that the sinner, by repentance and the exercise of faith in the righteousness of Christ, can be reconciled to God, to God and become a partaker of the divine nature, overcoming the corruption that is in the world through lust. It is possible. The faith I live by, 114. Christ came to the world to counteract Satan's falsehood that God had made a law which man could not keep, we can keep it because Christ came to show that. Taking humanity upon himself, he came to this earth and by a life of obedience showed that God has not made a law that man cannot keep. He showed that it is possible for man to perfectly obey the law. Those who accept Christ as their Savior, becoming partakers of His divine nature, are enabled to follow His example, living in obedience to every precept of the law, through the merits of Christ, man is to show by his obedience that he could be trusted in heaven, that he would not rebel. We have to hold on to the divine nature by faith. I mean, it's, you know, there, there's, we read these things about obedience, there's nothing about human power. It's all Christ's power. Conflict and Courage 247. His grace is given to work in us to will and to do, but never as a substitute for our effort. Never. We have to do something. We have to place effort. And God, when our efforts are at their limit, then God can start stepping in and making up. Those who walk in the path of obedience will encounter many hindrances. Strong, subtle influence may bind them to the world, but the Lord is able to render futile every agency that works for the defeat of his chosen ones. In his strength, they may overcome every temptation, conquer every difficulty. Amen. God is, is, God is awesome. I, that's all I can say when I read these things. God is incredible. Right? He can do through us and for us and in us things that would be like doom and lost, be finished. Okay, so what we've learned regarding sanctification. Sanctification is imparted righteousness. It's sanctification is the will of God. Sanctification is a lifetime of obedience by the power of grace. And grace is never a substitute for our efforts. Next, we're going to talk about a very slightly, mostly controversial topic. We're going to talk about perfection. 
But before we do that, I'd like to dismiss you to take a break to absorb a little bit what we've, we've talked about. Uh, we started late, but apparently my presentation would have about an hour, so you've been good, and uh, that's all by the power of God, I'm sure. And so let's have a word of prayer, and then you can go stretch a little bit and try to come back in uh, 15 minutes. 15 minutes. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful again that you've shown us so great things. Uh, I'm speechless, Lord, to know how, how wonderful and powerful and incredible you are. And I'm sure I'm speaking for everyone that is here. And Lord, we, we just want to thank you. Thank you for being so awesome to us. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your power. Thank you for, for all you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, that you'll keep us until we return, Lord, that you'll continue to teach us. And uh, Lord, you're just great. Forgive our sins, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.